Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Nog, a history podcast, where I share underrepresented historical figures who change life as we know it today. So if you're interested in all things history and representation, please like and subscribe. Be sure to click that little bell to enable notifications so you don't miss future episodes of Nog. All right, let's begin. Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz is compassionately referred to as the 10th Muse, known by many as the greatest poet in colonial Mexico, and now known to represent the first feminist writings in the New World. This nun created quite the splash in Golden Age Mexico. This is her story. Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, becoming a nun for a quiet place to read. Juana was a gifted and brilliant little girl, excited and enamored by learning in all of its forms. Born in 1651 in poverty, she did not have as many opportunities to pursue education as the boys and the rich had. She became jealous when, at the age of three, one of her elder sisters began reading lessons. She says that out of affection for her sister and a desire to know what was happening, she followed her sister through the streets to her lessons and upon arrival, deceived the abbess. Her deception was that she told the abbess that her mother had intended for her to receive reading lessons alongside her sister. Apparently she was such a natural that by the time her mother found out about the arrangement, she had learned how to read. As a young adolescent, she wore men's clothing and begged her mother to let her go to university to learn among the men. Her mother refused, so Juana built her own future to be able to study. This affection for literature would follow her through the rest of her life and fuel her lifelong career as an avid poet, playwright, composer, and occasional theologian. But more on that later. Once it was clear that marriage was not her goal in life, Juana entered the convent. She was advised that it would be a good fit for her. Straightforward from the beginning, she made it clear that she was not a devout woman, at least devout enough for the sisterhood. But she was assured that her devotional act of composition with her written work and pursuit of knowledge and learning was in celebration of God's creation. Without the looming societal distraction of marriage looming over her, she was able to compose historically praised works that are valued even today. That's the best way to find a quiet place to read, if you ask me. She had several wonderful years of blissful access to an ever-growing personal library and even received worldwide acclaim for her dazzling works. She wielded words like a dancer twirls a ribbon, deliberate, precise, yet flowing with a deceptive ease. At this point, she was heralded for her strong-handed way of chastising those who kept learning and knowledge from women. She was all about educational equality. You see, this was the 1600s, and especially with the Spanish Inquisition still hanging dangerously over everyone's heads, many of the things that she wrote about were borderline dangerous. She expressed almost radical ideas on the importance of the pursuit of education and learning, on the innate desire and need to learn 
to wonder. Her stance on woman being deserving of a seat at the table of intellectual discourse also was not popular among the core of the church. However, at this time, she continued her work unperturbed in her wondrous writings and intellectual musings. For you see, Mexico is a long way from Spain, and the Inquisition felt like a faraway danger. She was the pride of the Abbey. Many traveled all over Mexico and from across the ocean from Europe to see her, listen to her readings, and engage in discourse with her. This, of course, was not preferable to some. Those in the church who wanted to exercise power over her were powerless to act with the world being enraptured by her. And she was further protected by one other very important person. She was the prized pet of the Spanish Viceroy and his wife, the Viserine. As you may recall, Juana was an exceptionally smart child, learning to read at the age of three. As she aged through her preteen years, she studied Greek philosophy and was teaching younger children Latin as she entered her teenage years. Her self-taught education also included familiarity with the Nahuatl language, a language of the Aztecs that she wrote a handful of poems in. At the age of 16, her mother presented her to the court of the Viceroy, Marquise de Manser, where she would become lifelong friends with the Viceroy and his wife, Maria Luisa Manrique. At 17, the Viceroy organized an impressive panel made up of all the intellectual leaders and scholars known to Mexico at the time to test Juana's mind. They enthusiastically propelled question after question at her, aiming to test the limits of her knowledge of the known world. She didn't miss a single one. Whether the topic was geography or theology, all of that reading paid off as she was publicly acknowledged for the brilliant genius that she was. For those unfamiliar, at the time, Mexico was still very much under the control of Spain. And with this control, there were two very important figures that represented Spanish interests in Mexico that would prove very influential to Juana's story and fate. One is the Archbishop, who represents the church. The other is the Viceroy with his wife, who act as the physical representative of the King of Spain. Representing his interest in Mexico gave the Viceroy an incredibly large amount of power and social leverage to wield as he so chose. In this case, he used his position to protect Juana from any menacing forces that wished her harm. She was doing good work that was bettering mankind with its notions of inclusivity and her critical analysis and criticisms of current theology. But certain members of the church certainly saw her success and work sacrilegious for their representation of women as deserving of intellectual pursuits such as education and other related fields, as well as the fact that her growing number of personal items suggested more interest in the secular than the expected spiritual existence of nuns. It's been suggested that Juana had the largest library in America, that she had a lovely collection with a wide range of topics and areas of study. They left her endangered. She was reading authors that no one in Spain would dare touch for fear of the Inquisition. 
it's been speculated that Hawana may have been attracted to women. Where does this come from? Well, it has always been said that Hawana had an incredibly personal and close relationship with Maria Luisa, the Viserine. There are scores of personal visits recorded of the Viserine staying with Juana. They would often discuss poetry, philosophy, and ponder the existence of women on a man's earth. Juana, as you might very well have guessed, had many strong opinions on gender roles and the dominant position man held in global discussions of intellectual pursuits. There was also the matter of the very personal and very devotional poems that were addressed to the Viserine by Juana de la Cruz. While initially not out of the ordinary, as it was common practice in Europe to write affectionately to one another in court, it later becomes a point of scrutiny on Juana's character as the church collects little bits of evidence to make a case against the pure intentions of Juana's soul. While affection and glamorous declarations were in vogue in high European society, the following is an excerpt of Juana writing to the Viserine. Don't go, my darling. I don't want this to end yet. This sweet fiction is all I have. Hold me so I'll die happy, thankful for your lies. My breasts answer yours, magnet to magnet. Why make love to me, then leave? Why mock me? Now I am certainly no expert on literary interpretations on Mexican poetry of the Golden Age, nor am I a scholar in interpersonal communications in Golden Age European courts, so I'll leave it up to you to make your own opinion on if that's a friendly, courtly correspondence between good friends, or if there's something more carnal at work. Just as a quick note, that's just one of several passages that can fall in this category. As time passes, the Viserine becomes a mother, and her relationship with Juana waxes and wanes. But the Viceroy's court always stays true at Juana de la Cruz's side. The problem is, he can only protect Juana if he stays Viceroy. And as one can guess, during any period where the Inquisition is burning hot, that favors will change and positions will be reappointed. As Juana is receiving pressure from the court to recant her devious ways of secular intellectual pursuit, she is suddenly without protection, as the Viceroy suddenly loses the favor of the king, and he and her friend, the Viserine, are suddenly shipped back to Spain. The only gift they can give Juana is to take her manuscripts and publish them in Spain before she is at the whims of the church. Having inadvertently made enemies throughout her entire career, suddenly standing alone and surrounded by a growing radicalism within the Abbey, Juana loses all of her worldly possessions. For a woman with a gigantic library and a lifetime of notes and theories and learning, this is beyond devastating. This is your life's work. If it weren't for the kindness of the Viceroy and saving her best, most prized pieces, then those would be lost to the world. This happened in stages. First, she was barred from entering her library. Wax seals of the order affixed to prohibit her entry. Then, as the time and politics worked their influence, she eventually was forced to relinquish everything if she wanted to stay in their good graces. Some accounts say that her books were confiscated by the archbishop. Others say that she was forced to, or of her own volition, sold all of her educational materials and donated the proceedings to the poor. Her mother falls incredibly ill during this time, and Juana de la Cruz is allowed to leave the grounds to go see her. 
There, Juana sees the last of her mother and is left all alone in the world as she returns to the abbey, returning to her shame. With her mother now passed, her old friend the Viceroy being only that by memory, she only has herself and her relationship with the abbey. She receives very strict and rigorous instructions on how she must become the Juana that God wants her to be. She naturally bucks against the suggestion that her lifelong love of poetry and writing was spent in a mindset of indulgence and gluttonous pride. But as she has nothing to study and no personal possessions to even consider her previous hobbies, she makes a pivotal declaration. She announces her actions, going as far as to call herself the least deserving of God's love and that her actions are damnable and deserving of hell. The woman who is now known as the first feminist of the new world, brilliant mind who challenged patriarchal notions of available education and gender roles in domestic and public spaces, this vibrant force of life and learning, signs her declaration of a life of sin with the sign off, I, the worst of all. As heartbreaking as that is, there are some scholars that suggest that this piece was written satirically. That being forced to make this position, that she used her wit to write a very professional piece, but with underlying elements of sarcasm. This might be able to be taken with a grain of salt that her spirit wasn't crushed, that she was still the witty Juana that we all grew to love. Tragically, Mexico at this time has been overrun by flooding and famine. A devastating and unyielding illness sweeps over the land, killing many and dealing a great blow to Mexico's people. Sadly, the Black Death reaches the confines of the Abbey. Death and disease ravage the nuns, and since she so diligently committed to aiding to the sick, Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz dies soon after her declaration having fully and completely submitted to the forces that forced her to lay her pen down, that forced her to settle into the role of a complacent woman who has no claim to intellect or desire to learn. It's tragic that the most important part in Mexican history would meet such a grueling and heart-wrenching fate, that she would go from being an international influence to a person with no choice other than to submit. She changed the course of history with her writing, affecting public perception and teaching everyone that women have a place at the table. That if we just let them pursue their interests with the freedom that men are allowed, that we as a species may outgrow our previous trajectories of growth and understanding. Though the conclusion to her story is tragic, her work lives on and continues to wow audiences today. She wrote with a quick woodenness that was uncharacteristic at the time and led to the likability of her craft. Her plays were comical and eloquent, her poetry appealed to many audiences. Her contribution to Golden Age poetry in Mexico has awarded her the honor of being featured on Mexican currency. Juana was charismatic and was predisposed to make friends before she was forced to lose her writing and books. What could she have accomplished if she had been allowed to study and learn uninterrupted? Would she have died of the plague if she wasn't forced into the abbey life because marriage was the only other option available to her? We have beautiful and incredible work from what she was able to make despite her later barriers. Her piece, First Dream, explores the path and nature of learning, and it's one of her most famous pieces. What else could she have written if she was allowed to pursue her career like the men in her time? What does that say about how we value women then and today? Are there parallels between her society and today with a woman choosing between having a family 
and having a professional passion? I had a wonderful time reading, listening, and learning about this firecracker of witty intellect and passion. Sister Juana led an exciting existence. It's even more impressive when you realize that she accomplished her literary masterpieces while living isolated as a nun that spends her days praying five times a day. She was a master of poetry, composition, playwriting, and theology, and she surely deserves international recognition for her work. She very well may have also been an LGBTQ historical icon. Thank you for listening to Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, Becoming a Nun for a Quiet Place to Read. Go ahead and ask questions in the comments, and don't forget to like and subscribe. In two weeks, I have a new episode coming out with Nog, a history podcast. So don't forget to like, subscribe, and share this video with someone who you think would like it. I invite you to join Nog on Facebook and Instagram. Those links are in the description below. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.